You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Jennifer Eubank, Deputy Director of the Central Intelligence Agency for Digital Innovation. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm delighted to have been invited. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Now, this is interesting because while people, of course, are familiar with the Central Intelligence Agency, otherwise known as the CIA, we don't often think about the digital innovation part of the whole thing. Give us your elevator pitch. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Well, let me tell you about CIA and then I'll tell you about what I'm doing because not everyone really knows what we do. So we are the world's premier intelligence and espionage service and we do three primary things. One is we collect intelligence around the world, secrets about what our adversaries are planning and intend to do. We often do that through human sources. In the movies, they call them spies. We call them sources. We produce all source analysis. And this is, you know, amazing intellects in our analytic cadre who pull together information from all different sources and produce judgments to inform policymakers to help the president and others make the best decisions. And what's interesting and unique about the CIA in this regard is that we tell policymakers what they need to know, not what they want to hear. And then third, we conduct covert action on instructions of the president. And that is our special authority to, say, affect events overseas to support our national security. And it's a difficult thing to describe, but I would challenge you to think about it this way. When diplomacy is not enough and military action is too much, we are the third option. And so the directorate I lead is responsible for the digital transformation of the agency, bringing all of these new emerging digital technologies into our mission and integrating them with our human intelligence mission, our technical intelligence collection capabilities, all these things. As we saw the transformation across kind of the business landscape, we understood that we needed to transform as well. And we created this new directorate in 2015. And I now have the honor and pleasure of leading it. That's amazing. And what is you know, it's funny that you use phrases like, you know, so what's interesting just in this regard, as opposed to, you know, other aspects of espionage, which are not interesting and are completely mundane for the rest of the world. <laughs> nice qualifier there. But it's one of the biggest challenges that I find most leaders experience as they move up the, the ranks, as it were, in their organizations of whatever sort is the challenge of what people refer to as managing up. And that how do you provide your whoever you directly report to or a level or two above them, even for that matter, with the information that they need and the information that you want them to understand. But of course, with the diplomacy of figuring out how to perhaps give it with a spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down or otherwise make sure that the messenger doesn't get shot in the process of your world. That could actually be literal. I got to watch my metaphors. But no. <laughs> But to, to be able to communicate that, you know, sensitive and potentially un, non-ideal information to people, and you're actually communicating that to the president of the United States. I mean, it doesn't get any higher than that. The president of a company is one thing. The president of a division is one thing. But the president of the entire United States, that would be, I would imagine, a little intimidating from time to time, is it? 
Well, our analysts and our director, of course, deliver those messages directly, but we have special culture and we do believe in candor and transparency and direct message. And so it can be challenging, but it's always delivered with respect and the best of intents. And we are only commenting on other countries. What are other countries planning to do? What are their plans and intentions? How might that affect us? We leave the policymaking, all the political stuff, we leave that to others to deal with. Yes, right. So primarily looking at international relations and and those challenges. So nevertheless, bad news is bad news or less than ideal news is less than ideal news. And I would imagine that it has to be delivered very, very carefully. We deliver a lot of bad news. That is true. But we're glad we have people like you to do that because we need people at the top ranks to know what's going on for better and most definitely for worse. So thank you for all of your service. Thank you. It's often a very dark world we live in. So (laughs) we've got lots of light here. We're going to have a great time on this show today and and illuminate a lot of really important topics, really valuable topics that are going to add light to everybody else's job. So thank you for being part of this conversation today. Now, with regard to all that darkness, sometimes there is light. What's your favorite part of your job and why? The thing I really love about this career, this, I, I think of it as a, it's a calling. It's not a job is the ability to learn new things and almost reinvent your career on a regular basis. So I come out of the operations world, that first world that I described, collecting secret information around the world. And what that means is every couple of years, it's a new country, a new language you get to master, new culture, new people, new issues, you name it. And that really keeps this career exciting and fresh and really rewarding year after year after year. And now following a long career in operations, Now, here I am leading a large technology workforce. And so for me, I literally get to come to work every day. I learn something new from extraordinary people. And and there are moments when I still have to pinch myself. And I think, man, how lucky am I? It's a pretty awesome career. And as I started with, it's, it's more a calling for us in the CIA than it is a job. That's so important to figure out where is your calling? Because I think when you feel like there's a mission involved when it's from the heart, when you're, this is where you're meant to be. It, it changes your motivation for getting out of bed every day, for going to the office every day, for going to, out of the office for that matter. So I, I think that's awesome that you're so passionate about what you're doing. I'm curious, you mentioned that a new language every few years, among other things, how many languages have you learned to whatever degree of proficiency? So I've learned a like smattering of many and I have had I would say a fairly high level of fluency in five. Wow. Okay. So you got to rattle those off for me. I will respectfully decline just because they do reflect where I've spent most of my time in my career overseas. So, oh, that's such a tease. Oh my goodness. Okay. We're going to have to have some girl talk afterward. Let's say amongst them are a number of one language countries. So (laughs) interesting. Interesting. Okay. So now you've clearly left me off. I've got three more or less under my belt and the smattering, probably another half dozen, but I can get myself in trouble in a lot of them, but that's probably not terribly helpful at some point. But nevertheless, oh my goodness, five to a good degree of fluency. And that's not even the smattering language. Okay. So anybody out there who that the moral to this story is anybody out there who says, well, I'm too old. You got to be a kid to learn a foreign language. You have to, you know, immerse yourself in the culture and only speak that language. And there's no other way to learn it. Or, you know, I don't have the time to learn it. I think we've just busted that myth. So I don't care if you're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, if you want to learn a foreign language for travel purposes, work purposes, new opportunities, or just because, just shut up and do it. Yes. I have two pieces of advice. One, you need to, you need to learn 
how you learn best, right? How do you absorb information and retain it the best? And that's key. And then second, and this is really important in foreign languages, just get over yourself. Stop worrying about the mistakes. Just speak. People will understand and you will improve. And once you can break that kind of pattern where you're just so concerned, did I get that verb tense wrong? Did I get that preposition wrong? Once you get over that, then a whole new world unfolds ahead of you. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Get over yourself, everybody. Here's the thing. You're going to make mistakes. It's not going to be easy. You're starting from square one or maybe square three if you studied whatever language in high school a gazillion years ago. That's It's all still in there latent. And I will say this, if you reach out to us through info at speakingtoinfluence.com, anybody who's curious, I will send you, I have a tool that is a learning style survey. It's a real simple checklist and it gives you a sense of how your brain processes information and we'll find a way to do a webinar afterwards for anybody who's interested to debrief your results and identify what kind of approach to learning a foreign language will work best with the way that your brain works. And then even if you all you have is, you know, this particular app, say, here's where that's going to gel well with you. Here's where you'll need to compensate. Here's what's going to make things easier. Here's where you'll have a little bit of bumps along the way. But expect that. And it's the fit. It's kind of like, why don't you look good in those jeans? It's the cut of the jeans, not you. It's just a matter of finding the right fit and adapting accordingly. So thank you for that opportunity to talk about foreign language learning because it's such an amazing tool in every aspect of life. And it's something that I feel like right under public speaking is probably the, they say public speaking is the greatest fear. Death is the second. I think learning a foreign language and having to speak a foreign language is probably third on the list. What do you think? I don't know if it's quite that dramatic, but I do know a lot of people find it intimidating. And and I, the last thing I would add about it is, well, I'd add two things. One is that you you can never really understand a culture, and not that you can ever understand another culture perfectly, but you can never really understand the heart of it if you don't understand the language because it's reflected in the words themselves. And so that is key. And then second, it's just, it's just more enjoyable, right? To connect with people, to understand your environment, to enjoy what people in that country enjoy. You're always operating with a barrier or a wall if you don't speak the language or if you don't try. So that would be my pro tip. Just try. Yes. Yes. You got to start someplace. So the beginning is a perfectly good place and it's fun. It can really be fun to feel like you're connecting with people on a whole different level. So, all right. Second language learning, third, fourth, 12th language learning, public service announcement done. From there, tell me a little bit, Jennifer, about what's one of the big issues of the day for you and how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? So one of the big issues for me and for my organization right now is cybersecurity. And I would say that's a big issue for America in general. So it's probably something everyone should think about in one way or another. For me in this job, though, there are lots of different constituencies, lots of different stakeholders. And so you have very different conversations with each of those. So if I think about my workforce in the Directorate of Digital Innovation, this is a highly technical workforce. So engineers of every type, data scientists, ethical hackers, apps developers, you name it really extraordinary people. And those conversations are pretty quickly down in the weeds. Like we are talking the technical details of our programs that really need to understand A, what we're trying to accomplish, B, what support the team needs from me as a leader. And so those conversations can be pretty weedy at times, but really, really critical to understand where we're heading as an organization. Second, group I would highlight would be our, our stakeholders across the CIA. So these are our partners outside of our directorate. 
if I go back to that early outline of what CIA does, think about that operations world where we're collecting intelligence. Think about the analytic world where we're producing judgments. So these people, we, are under a fair amount of pressure, right? We need to learn the next important thing. Is Al-Qaeda planning another attack? Is some country going to launch a nuclear weapon? Is, is, is. Like We have really important things we need to do. And somehow, my conversations with them, I need to connect with that mission to explain the importance of cybersecurity. We need to protect your sources. We need to protect our intelligence. We need to protect our officers overseas. And that starts with protecting our information and our systems. And we need to have that ability because, you know, we're like any organization, right? Resources are finite. At some point, there's always a resource discussion. Is the balance going to tip one way or the other? And there are moments when we need to tip more towards cybersecurity. And so you need to be able to translate that across the organization. And then the third group I would mention would be our outside stakeholders, largely, let's think policymakers, think Congress, think National Security Council, think other agencies and departments. And so in those conversations, I'm representing the CIA, and I need to convey to them our position on fill in the blank, some issue that we're talking about debating. One that's really foremost in our minds these days is strengthening the partnership between the public sector and the private sector, because we are all vulnerable these days. There are really aggressive cyber actors out there trying to steal our intellectual property, steal our information, penetrate our systems, potentially put our systems at risk. Think of the ransomware threats and the rest of that. And so, you know, it's interesting because it's not what people think about when they think about CIA and the intelligence world about how do we promote better partnerships with industry, right? These are the kinds of things we talk about. And then the other unique role that I have when I'm engaging with these outside partners Because of CIA's unique mission in providing analytic assessments, I'm also often briefing our analytic views on fill in the blank. What is a particular country trying to accomplish? What is the threat that they pose to us? What are the risks of cyber attacks? What are the risks of ransomware attacks from this country? And so my role in those conversations is often the context for what then becomes a policy discussion or a political discussion, which is somebody else's role. But providing that kind of candid, you know, what you need to know, not what you want to hear foundation is something that I I have to do quite regularly. That's a lot of balls to juggle at the same time and to, to keep everybody straight. And in doing so, when you've had the opportunity, when you first went from being an individual contributor to leading a team, what's an important lesson that you learned? Oh, wow. There's so many, right? And for me personally, I think one of the very first lessons I learned when I assumed larger leadership roles was about authenticity. And it, it is something people talk about a lot these days, but it wasn't when I joined the CIA. And when I joined, there were not many women in my line of work. I was, you know, we call operations officer, working overseas, collecting secrets, conducting clandestine operations. And there weren't many women doing that. So you can imagine there were very, very few women leading teams doing that. And, you know, over the years, what had developed is a certain stereotype of what an effective leader in the operational realm looked like, how usually he behaved, how he presented himself. And it was all the stereotypes. You can find the stereotypes in the movies, you know, kind of bold, swashbuckling, brash, you know, gregarious, extrovert, all these things. And I did like try that on and try to be that, but it was very awkward and very unnatural. And, and it took me a while to, to realize that, you know, that authenticity is necessary to build trust with the team. If you don't have trust, then how are you going to lead? 
And at some pivotal moment, I finally realized that I was either going to be myself and succeed or try to be somebody else and fail. And once I came to that decision, it all became a little bit clearer and easier for me and much more enjoyable. No doubt. No doubt. It did. Did you find that that was a difficult transition to make, shifting into something a little, from what I'm inferring, something perhaps a little more understated, similarly direct perhaps, but not so over the top in, in dynamism perhaps? Did you, how was it received when you made the shift? Well, I, I think pretty well. I managed to succeed. So I guess somebody thought I did it well. <laughs> I'm here and in a job that I never would have imagined being in many years ago. It's, it's, all tremendous honor. But in that initial shift, you know, if you were, if they, if they'd gotten used to you trying to be like them and then was there any hiccup or was it more just like, no, they were fine with it. And it was in your own head that you had to just get out of your own way. I think it was in my own head. It was in my own head for sure. And building on the stereotypes in our organization. And so once I, again, another use of this phrase got out of my own way, it was, it was much clearer, you know, what I needed to do. And and so I am, I'm an introvert by background, which is, you know, very unusual for me to find myself on a podcast like this, speaking about the CIA of all things, but I'm an introvert by background. I, I do have high levels of empathy and compassion and all these things that we talk about now as elements of effective leadership, but that were not often spoken about as elements of effective leadership years ago. And so, you know, authenticity was, was the thing for me. I think the I, I'm hearing an important theme here about the need to get out of our own way. And there's I've often spoken about head trash. We got to take out the head trash where we're convinced of certain things. We hold ourselves back unnecessarily, but just seems like at every stage, there are things that we do consciously, unconsciously and otherwise that just we trip over it and it's completely our own doing. So not to say that there isn't stuff out there that is impediments to our success and we have to work on overcoming those external barriers. But why create more for ourselves? We really just need to get out of our own way. And, you know, not to go off on a tangent, Laura, but, but I, and I don't want to play to stereotypes, but there is something to be said about this idea of imposter syndrome with women in some leadership positions. And, and this really became vivid to me when I was speaking to, and I will protect her name, but one of the most senior women officials ever in the U.S. government at the top for career, worldwide recognition, extraordinary person. And she said to me one day that each day when she looked in the mirror, this was after she had left that role and she was in a more reflective mood, retired. And she said each day she looked in the mirror and her inner voice would ask her, who do you think you are? Why do you think you can do this? And questioning her and questioning her. And, and she interestingly had this persona very much like I described in my early leadership experience, this kind of a little bit too bold, a little bit too brash, a little bit too direct. And, and people thought she was frankly, you know, not a very nice person. But what it was, was this whole dynamic of imposter syndrome and kind of a self-defense mechanism. And I think there's something to say about that with, with many women in leadership positions where women are not frequently leading teams. And luckily, we have made a lot of progress as an agency since that time. And we really do embrace all forms of leadership and public service announcement, I think would, would be a surprise to many people. There was a point not long ago when our director and five, the heads of our five directorates, so five deputy directors for fill in blank operations analysis, science, technology, digital innovation and support were all women. Wow. 
So to me, that was just a real testament to the transformation that we've had as an organization and frankly, as a country, right? Yes, yes. And I think the imposter syndrome is something that ironically, women, I think, talk about it most, at least I tend to hear about when spoken in groups of women's events, women's organizations, minority groups and, and resource groups of various diversity sorts uh, often also talk about that challenge. And yet a good number of my clients are male executives and they frequently talk about it just as much. So I think the difference, which is a detriment to them, is that that culture often tells them they're not supposed to. Just like, you know, men aren't supposed to have feelings, men aren't supposed to cry, men aren't supposed to eat broccoli or, you know, whatever it happens to be, that they're not allowed to acknowledge those things. So it doesn't get, it doesn't tend to get talked about in those circles, but it really is a very human experience. Everyone has that inner voice, that inner critic that says, who do you think you are? You're going to screw this up. What if you can't do this? You know, you, yeah, it's, it's a challenge for everybody. So thank you for voicing that and, and helping others out there who may be wondering, is it just me? Answer that question. No, it's not. Isn't that the key point as you outlined? It's a common human experience. Yes. Yes. And hopefully through conversations like this, we're going to change that too and, and have the change like you just described of having all five of the senior directors being women. And I'm guessing that wasn't just a diversity initiative. We finally realized, nope, these are the right people. Not at all. Right. So you can't put the excuse on it that, oh, they're just checking a box. No, they've got the whole panel and they happen to be the most qualified. I think that's beautiful. Now that brings us to a challenge for everybody else. And this is our opportunity, Jennifer, to talk directly to the audience and levy your 24-hour influence challenge. This is a chance for you to challenge the audience to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How do you want to challenge our listeners today? Okay, so I have a good one, I think. And, but it's a little unusual. So I believe firmly that influence expands when you share information with colleagues, with partners, with those maybe with whom you don't have a great relationship, right? But there are still people out there who believe that information is power and they hoard information for later, let's say personal or professional advantage. Now, many of them don't realize that they are that person, but, but they are. And so I would challenge listeners, if that resonates at all with you, if you are not routinely in the business of sharing information, I would challenge you to pick the busiest day on your calendar in the coming weeks. Look ahead, find the busiest day. And after each engagement, each meeting, each phone call, each, you know, whatever, before you go to the next thing, pause for a moment and think about who else would benefit from knowing what you learned and share it. Send an email, make a phone call, stop by the office next door, whatever it might be. And I think, I think you'll be really surprised by the allies that you that you kind of create through what is a very modest practice. I love it. So sharing information with others, which on the surface may seem like empowering others and giving allowing others to have more influence as opposed to realizing, no, this actually increases your social capital, increases your leadership reputation, increases the value that you provide to the organization. And it's it's not the the hoarding of power it's the sharing of it that is really where the power is is derived. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Beautiful. Okay. Now, we've talked about a lot of successes, but on every journey, on, there's a few potholes in the road. What's a communication-related mistake you've made at some point? Yeah. Thank you. Because you're right. Every journey has has a few bumps in the road along the way. And and if I, if I go back to our brief conversation about authenticity, I'll, I'll share that there was a 
a pivotal moment for me when I was really on the cusp of assuming executive leadership roles. And that's when we move into our most senior ranks in the organization. We start to lead really big teams and really complex programs and issues. And But I, I still was struggling with this leadership style issue. And, and I was, you know, trying to fulfill the stereotype, thinking that's how I was going to be rewarded with promotion and all the rest of that stuff. And I was, I guess I would summarize it by saying I was on transmit more than receive. I went to every conversation convinced that, you know, I had to win. And so ultimately what that created, it created a barrier, created a barrier between me and my team, which is problematic enough, but it created a barrier between me and a foreign government, a foreign host government where I was living and working and with whom I was responsible for building a good partnership, right? We are there to cooperate on issues of national security interests, mutual interests. Think, you know, thwarting terrorists or people proliferating nuclear materials or you know, lots of bad stuff happening out there. And partly it hinges, our ability to do that job hinges on the relationship that our leader in the field has with representatives of the government. And so for me, it created, you know, tension and a barrier there. And it, uh, upon reflection, I probably was not nearly as effective as I could have been. Uh, thankfully for their, you know, thanks to their good nature and their, their kindness, they, they did not allow us to fail, but I did not fulfill my role as I should have. And so if I had a do over and everyone would love to have a do over at some point, right? It's a mulligan. <laughs> if I had a do over, I would just follow the advice that I give every rising leader in the agency today. And that is, you know, to, to think about your own style your own personality, obviously maintain your passion, maintain your focus and your commitment to our job, but find out what's uniquely special and powerful about you and play to your strengths. And so as I started to, to mention earlier, I think that authenticity is essential to build trust. Trust is a key component of effective communication because if your team doesn't believe you, trust you, feel you, then how how is that communication going to be effective? And effective communication is at the heart of good leadership. And so if you don't start with the one, you will not end with the last one. Yes, trust is the core of everything. And certainly being open, being mindful of what is confidential, of course, is one thing, but otherwise being open and sharing and transparent in that communication, I think is absolutely mission critical. Okay, little postscript, be the best version of yourself. <laughs> yes, yes. I think part of the challenge sometimes is when we're in a new role, we're not sure what that best version is supposed to look like. And there's a little bit of trial and error along the way. But more often than not, there is actually an opportunity to do a do-over, to reinitiate a conversation and say, you know what, I should have handled this differently. Or I should, I want to fill in a blank that I left previously or whatever it is. There's almost always an opportunity to regroup, acknowledge, and move forward. And I think people appreciate the the humility in that, if you own it, or you're not too sheepish about it. I think I should have done this differently. No, you know what? I acknowledge I should have done this differently. Apologize for what's necessary. Move on from there and be sincere, but confident in owning that space and moving on. I, I think you just, it's possible to make leaps and bounds worth of progress in, in very short periods of time with those crucial moments. It's a great observation. And there's real power in a well-timed, rare but well-timed apology when you have made a misstep. And to do so with, you say, as humility, with sincerity, it's really powerful moment. And you can create extraordinary partnerships that way. And I've had a few examples of that over my career where I have made a misstep, miscalculated, and going back and just acknowledging that 
and charting a course forward that where it's going to improve has resulted in some really special and powerful relationships. And it's important, I think, to model top down that kind of ownership, that kind of accountability and recognize as opposed to saying, well, I'm at the top and I'm going to deny any wrongdoing and I'm never going to admit that I made a mistake and I'm never going to apologize if I actively unintentionally, but otherwise did something to hurt or embarrass or inconvenience or whatever another person that I'm not going to own that, then I'm telling everybody else implicitly that if you want to get to my level, you should behave the same. Then it all sort of crumbles from there as far as what's the culture of the organization and what kind of transparency trust do we build? So leading by example, I think is really mission critical in that way as well. So speaking of which, accountability, crucial conversations, all that kind of fun stuff. What's an approach that you've used to address an accountability issue with somebody on your team? There's an interesting dynamic in the CIA. And so I'll share the dynamic, then I'll share an example. So the dynamic is that, you know, all, all good news is credited to a team and all bad news, the leader takes responsibility. And, and I firmly believe that. So things that go wrong, I take responsibility. That sounds like sports, really, isn't it? I mean, that coaches lose and players win, coaches lose. That's right. And I, I'm the first to take responsibility for anything that goes wrong with the team. Now, that said, of course, we have to deal with you know individuals on a team. And so another unique thing about the agency, maybe not unique, but a, it's a characteristic that maybe not everyone would think about immediately. We hire pretty extraordinary people, very talented patriots. They come from all different backgrounds, really you know, devoted to our mission in a way that is, is sometimes surprising for people. And so often for us, when there's an accountability issue, it's not about, is it a good person, bad person, or they don't care, or they just, you know, they're slackers, anything like that. It's usually not about that. It's usually about the fit. Is it the right fit, the right job? And so once when I was leading a team overseas, I did have an officer who, who struggled a bit to perform at a certain standard. And by standard, I'm talking about our, our tradecraft. And these are the methods, the means by which we conduct our secret work. And they're designed to protect ourselves, protect our sources, protect our government. And, you know, not to be too dramatic about it, but, you know, it is espionage, right? And so things can happen. I think that's warranted <laughs> drama. I mean, there are certain places, there are those people who like to make drama just because they need to feel important about something, or that is actually the biggest crisis in their world. It is a molehill, but in their world of otherwise completely flat terrain. Okay, that seems dramatic. You're in international espionage. I think that qualifies as something that could appear realistically dramatic without having to have qualifications. So go ahead and tell us the story. The risks are high. Let's put it that way. The risks are high. So if something goes wrong, best case scenario is that you're going to have a very difficult day with another government. There might be a diplomatic incident. There might be an international incident. But you know, on rare occasions, someone's life could actually be at risk. And so there's this interesting dynamic here where you want to help people develop and grow and become the best version of an officer they can be. But you also have to keep this entire risk calculation in mind. And so I did have an officer who struggled a bit, worked with him over a period of time. And we had lots of great discussions, always rooted in respect, empathy, you know, ensuring that he would maintain kind of dignity and self-confidence and drawing out of him what he needed to, what support he needed to be a little more successful. And so that played out for a period of time, but not as long as it would if we were, you know, manufacturing widgets somewhere at a factory in America, right? Because I had this other dynamic to be concerned about. And so it resulted in a long conversation, he and I, one night where we talked about kind of the whole 
whole range of things. Like, what did he want out of this career? What were his goals? What kind of person did he want to be? What kind of officer did he want to be? And we talked a lot about the strengths that he had. And he had a lot. He's really an extraordinary American. Like the kind of person you'd be really delighted to have as a neighbor, an extraordinary person all around. And, and we talked about his goals. And then we decided that kind of came to this joint decision that his best opportunity to succeed in this job that he felt so passionate about, but where he had a few challenges, was to start new in a new environment with a kind of fresh attitude in an environment where he could have a bit more hands-on support and guidance and coaching. And that just wasn't possible in this location where we were overseas. We just couldn't manage that there. And so did make the decision to send him back to the States early where he could do all of that and you know, develop the skills he needed and wanted to be successful. And so if I, if I had a lesson to share from all of that, and, and it's, it's no great revelation. I think anyone who has an ounce of compassion would approach it the same way. I think, you know, having the conversations, difficult conversations in a way that maintain the dignity of the officer, that display empathy for the situation they're in, that show respect for them at all times and key helps them chart a path to success. Don't just do the former and then leave off the latter, right? Help them figure out the path to success. I think that's always been my approach. I think that's critical. And starting with understanding that you want this person to be successful and because it it is in everybody's best interest. Nobody wants to start from scratch or have failures. So to the extent that we're helping people start with the intention of charting a course to success, I think it just opens up conversation on on a whole different level. And in... In my world, in this, you know, world of intelligence and espionage, right? America wants you to be successful. So (laughs) we need to find a path. (laughs) I think that is a very fair assumption to make. And if anybody wants to disagree, feel free to let us know. But otherwise, I think that, yes, we can 100. I'm going to go out on a limb and say 100% people out here would like those in the intelligence world to be successful and keep us safe. So thank you to you, your team, and everybody else who does what you do. So. We can all do what we do safely and freely every day. With that, Jennifer, how can people learn more about you and the CIA, the organization, your space? Where can we find out more? Thank you. So CIA is on social media. I would invite any listeners to follow us on all the key platforms. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'd invite anyone who's interested to follow me on LinkedIn as well. I post content regularly about digital transformation and the intelligence business. I would also highlight something very exciting. We have our first ever CIA podcast. It's called The Langley Files. We've had two episodes released so far, and I would say it's getting great reviews. I've listened to it both. I, I love them. Really fantastic people you'll hear from. So I recommend that to everyone. And CIA.gov standard website, but it's rich in content about our people, our mission. And for anyone who might be interested in in career opportunities, lots of information about everything that we do and the kinds of people we hire. And trust me, if you can think of a career path, we have it in the CIA. Everything from, you know, graphic artists to satellite engineers and everything in between. So I commend anyone who might be interested to take a look there. That is amazing. And I love the idea of the Langley Files. What a fun new podcast. So listen to that one after, of course, you listen to this one. And then, you know, so there's always room for in life for two podcasts. So clearly these are the two most important ones. So thank you for that new resource. Jennifer, it has been so much fun talking to you today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And to everybody else, as always, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
and give us a five-star rating if you haven't done that yet on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or your favorite platform of choice so we can continue to help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, of course, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.